So welcome everyone to the Liturgy of the Great Nirvana. Uh, some of you who have been with us a long time will know that during our liturgical calendar year, the life and times of Shakyamuni Buddha, the great legends and lore and myths that evolved out of that experience of that historical being, serve as the cycle of our year together so that each year is a fresh renewal of our minds. So tonight also completes the period between the Satori and Nirvana. So I have three readings. So the first one is from the great Maha Paranirvana Sutra, the great Nirvana scripture. The Tathagata's body is not causally conditioned. Because it is not causally conditioned, it is said to have the true self. If it has the true self, then it also is eternal, blissful, and clear. The next reading is by C.S. Lewis and his novel, Perilandra. The universe is one, a spider's web wherein each mind lives along every line, a vast whispering gallery. And though no news travels unchanged, no secret can be rigorously kept. And finally, this is, uh, these are one of the lyrics, one of the lines from the song by Sturgill Simpson called The Dead Don't Die. Oh, well after life is over, the afterlife goes on. So, tonight we're going to, when we finish our liturgy, we're going to we're going to go through this experience, and what we're marking is the, the passing or the death of Shakyamuni. And uh, we're going to talk about, uh, based on the question that was given to me around this, and I get this question quite a bit, what is Nirvana? And uh, for a lot of people, Nirvana was a, was a rock band uh, that existed at a certain time. Um, for others, nirvana has become a synonym for anything that's really wonderful. So, for example, you'll see advertisements uh, saying something like, it's nirvana, man. And it's interesting to me to see this evolution because I grew up Christian. And I can remember when people would often make references to heaven. And they would say, that's heavenly. Or they would often, uh, if they were talking about a, a religious figure, uh, they would often say something about the Pope. And I noticed about 10 years ago that that had changed. That most people, when referring to the idea of what we might say heaven or something really wonderful, you know, they, um, they'll say nirvana. And, and I've seen it over and over again. And nowadays the Dalai Lama comes up uh, more than the Pope. 
<laughs> so I think that's part of the evolution of why Buddhism is the, really the, one of the fastest growing traditions in America and the Western world. And it's, it's sort of displaced some of the old affect imagery. So what I want to talk about tonight, and we're going we're gonna to talk about the death of Shakyamuni. Now Nirvana, uh, before I get into you know, the deeper meaning of it, um, basically Shakyamuni is said to have awakened and experienced Nirvana. And then at his death, he experienced the Maha, Parinirvana, or the Great Nirvana. And sometimes people find that kind of confusing, what that might mean. So hopefully tonight I can clear a little bit of that up. So there are three experiences of Nirvana that I want to talk about. So there are three ways to describe or discuss this term Nirvana, which is very, very important in our tradition. And before I get into those three, I just wanted to kind of preface this by saying that conversations around what nirvana is and nirvana, if you will, as a kind of a goal, uh, it's not spoken about very much these days. Like if you read some of the more popular uh, Buddhist magazines or you kind of look at, uh, at some of those journals, Surprisingly, there's very little discussion about nirvana. Part of that, I think, is because it's such a given. But I thought that it would be helpful before I get into the three um, primary ways to understand and experience nirvana, that I would talk a little bit about the history. So I think it's very important that uh, it's understood that scholars believe that the earliest Buddhist communities had a very specific meaning around nirvana. And there's a number of Buddhist scholars that uh, have kind of outlined what they think this pre-canonical, which means before the sutras even, Buddhism might have been like. And so when it comes to nirvana, then I'm actually using the language by Shayer, uh, one of the scholars. Nirvana was conceived as the attainment of immortality and the gaining of a deathless sphere. So, nowadays you don't hear much talk about that. I, I, I don't think you're going to find many Buddhist journals or magazines talking about nirvana as the gaining of a deathless sphere. When, when I remember, when Mary Potter came along, I remember the Death Eaters, you know, <laughs> I thought that was kind of, kind of funny. But yes, that's how the early Buddhists saw it. And that's how the classic Buddhist tradition is always understood. That it was the attainment of a deathless sphere in immortality. And I think that surprises some people. And this attainment of immortality, or this deathless sphere, was possible because, and I quote again, Nirvana can be reached because it already dwells as the innermost consciousness of the human being, the ground of being. It is a consciousness which is not subject 
to birth and death. And in the quote that I quoted from the great Nirvana scripture, that's what they're saying. They're saying, you know, because it's not causally conditioned. In other words, it's not, it's not skanda conditioned. It's not conditioned by what we call the five skandhas or how the human or all life forms come, sentient life forms come into to formation and evolution. That it's not a part of that. That it's either more deeply dwelling or it's transcendent. So I think it's important that we start off that way. Because a lot of Buddhism today hesitates to say that. But this is what made Buddhism so popular. And whether or not, um, you know, the Indian mythos, which was of, of what happens beyond life and death in the six different realms of existence, was literally understood or psychologically understood by the early Buddhists, they definitely believed this. And it was the idea, at least from an Indian perspective, that it really, nirvana is not about happy reincarnation. Nirvana is not about, well, you know, uh, the, the, some kind of cosmic justice balancing scheme, you know, like the Egyptians had in the world of their dead. You know, that you kind of like, if you're a bad person and your next incarnation is bad, you kind of got to work all through that. The Buddha's teaching was that nirvana transcends the wheel of life and death. It transcends any human conceptions of heaven and hells, of punishments. It is pure grace. And that that grace dwells within us as our innermost being or ground of being. And by being in touch with that, we experience the deathless sphere. And honestly, uh, uh, another thing that people should know about history is that, and it's very evident if you go to certain countries like Japan, Buddhism became very associated heavily with death. <laughs> and in fact, some scholars believe that the Buddhist priesthood or the Buddhist orders of clergy arose specifically to help people as they were dying. That the, 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 the actions, uh, uh, the ministerial actions, if you will, of the clergy or the priests was primarily serving that end. Otherwise, they were a teacher of the Dharma and a counselor and sort of the prototherapist. But the other heavy aspect of what they did was preparing people to die. And in Japan, it's very evident that if you ask the average Japanese, uh, who's very, you know, sort of diverse in what they think about religion, you'll find that uh, they, they might go to a Shinto um, uh, altar or space to, to pray for, you know, doing well on a test, and then they might get married in a, in a sort of a Christian ceremony with a white wedding dress and, and all that sort of thing. But boy, when it comes to sickness and dying, they're going to go to a Buddhist. Why is that? Because it was understood that they wanted to help that person cross over to the other shore as clearly as possible. There is a famous 
tome called the Bardo Toto, sometimes translated as the book, the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, or the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That whole book is a liturgical manual that the priest is to read to the person as they're dying or right after they've died. So Buddhists for a long time have considered the idea of entering the deathless sphere of immortality to be primary. And yet today we don't really talk about it that much. And I'll give you some reasons why I think that is. So what's the first way that someone can experience nirvana? So there's some alliterations here I did, so I hope you'll appreciate them. The first one is the magnificent metaphor. Nirvana as the magnificent metaphor. Now this is the one we're most commonly associated with. And that is the idea that nirvana is a metaphor for bliss for liberation, for the true country. And I think that that use of the word nirvana is much more common today. And why is that? Well, partially it's because people have the misnomer that if they have a more scientific understanding of the world, which, of course, I'm all about, that somehow that precludes believing that this experience is not the whole thing. That like uh, Sturgill said, what Sturgill say? Oh well, after life is over, the afterlife goes on. This metaphor is the most popular use of it, and I'm okay with that. I think it's, it's a good metaphor. And remember, a metaphor is different from a simile or an analogy. A metaphor means that it participates in the reality that it's pointing to. So, for example, if I say that Bill swims like a fish, that ain't a metaphor. But if I say Bill's a fish, that's a metaphor. So when we use this magnificent metaphor, it is, it is indeed participating in whatever it is that we're describing. So when we talk about liberation, we talk about bliss, we talk about the pure land, the true country, the true home. Nirvana is the word. So that's the magnificent metaphor. And that's probably the most popular use. The second way the second way to experience nirvana is mindful magic, or the magic of mindfulness. Now, what does that mean? It means that the way of mindful living, which has three basic foundations, is a way that we can immediately experience nirvana. Now, those three foundations, I furthered my alliteration, are maxim, meditation, and magnanimity. I'm into the M's. What's the maxim? A maxim is a principle that 
becomes the fundamental way within which you view or see things. And our maxim is the wisdom of interdependence. Sometimes it's talked about as shunyata or emptiness, but what that means, it just simply means that there's no individual existence that is distinct or separate from everything else, that everything is interconnected, as we use in our liturgy, interbeing. That is the reality. And as I pointed out in this book, that's something that you can understand now through our knowledge base, which we call science. So that's the maxim. The second is the practice of meditation, which is learning how to observe one's thoughts, feelings, and sensations without identifying them, and rather to identify not even with the observer, but with the consciousness that is even profoundly beyond that. <coughs> Excuse me. So, maxim, meditation, and then magnanimity. What does that mean? It means the actions, the compassionate actions that flow from the foundation of maxim and meditation. So whenever a person is learning our approach to the Dharma, the four direction system of mindfulness, one of the practices they'll engage is called the four questions. Now here's what I can say to you without any hesitation and complete confidence. That if you take a situation that has arisen in your daily life, what uh, the Japanese might call a genjo koan. When you take that and you take it through that four questions process, which is based on the insights of the four noble truths and the, the sati patana, when you go through that, if you do it and you follow the steps, you will experience nirvana. Nirvana is the experience when you go through the four questions at feeling more at ease, at feeling free from whatever it was that had vexed you, at being clear in the feeling that comes from that clarity. That, my friends, is an experience of Nirvana. And so we have the magnificent metaphor which can be also the way we might describe some experience of oneness we might have. Some powerful experience that we have of the oneness of all life. And it is also the magic of mindfulness, where we learn how the interdependence of our beliefs with our experiences, with our thoughts, with our feelings, with our sensations, with our actions, with our consequences, that that wheel that is created, if what we're doing on that wheel is creating suffering, we call it the wheel of samsara. But when we do the four questions and we're free from that wheel, or we do one of the three practices of precept, meditation, mindfulness, that's an experience of the nirvana, man. That's nirvana. You want to know what nirvana tastes like? 
do the four questions and experience some freedom from whatever it is that hooks you. And that's probably the most practical way to experience nirvana on a daily basis. One of the most practical. That in the practice of meditation. That in the practice of compassionate action. Those are ways by which you can experience nirvana. So it, it's not a far off concept or something that's really hard for us to get our heads around. It can be experienced in daily life. Or, as I said with the magnificent metaphor, it could be some big experience. But as I always say, that big experience won't mean much if we don't do something with it. The third is what I call the mysterious miracle. The mysterious miracle. Again, I'm using my lot of M's. Don't always know why that happens. It just happens to me, and I kind of flow with it. So what is the mysterious miracle? Well, this is where we go back kind of to what I was saying at the beginning about what early Buddhists conceived nirvana as. It was a mysterious miracle. And two words were used to describe this mysterious miracle. Tathagata. And eternal life. Now what is Tathagata? Tathagata is a very mysterious and profound concept. And any being that is enlightened is referred to as Tathagata. And there are many different ways to translate it, but it essentially is the body of a Buddha. It is the expression of a Buddha. And the other term was eternal life. Now what's interesting is, is that the concept of evolution was central to this idea. Now, I don't think that concept of evolution necessarily included Darwin's idea then, but I do think that the understanding of evolution that we have from science is not dissimilar, ultimately. Because at the end of the day, it's about the idea of how the interaction with our environment causes mutation and adaption. So this mysterious miracle was illustrated in two ways in Buddhist mythos. The first was the story of Shakyamuni, who most scholars believe was an historical being named Siddhartha Gautama. And the idea that he had this great experience of, the, of awakening to the oneness of all life, and out of that he created a spiritual technology, which we call mindfulness and meditation. And that he had experienced nirvana under the Bodhi tree, which we celebrated back in December. But at his death, which honestly wasn't that spectacular, depending on how you read it. I mean, he was an elder man. He was, he was elder. And um, basically, 
you can look at it one of two ways. Either he ate some bad barbecue and experienced food poisoning and died from that. Or some more nefarious ones where some people were always trying to stop the Buddha and what he was doing because it was upsetting the caste system and the establishment of his day. And some people now also believe it's possible he was poisoned. Trying to get rid of him. Either way, you know, he died after eating a meal and he, he kind of realized something was wrong with it and he asked them not to eat it. He asked that everybody, please don't eat any of this and don't even, you know, leave it out for the animals, bury it because there's something wrong with it. And he held no enmity towards the person who had provided the meal for them that night. But he knew he wasn't well and so was Ananda, his... Uh, his main disciple and friend, uh, they made their way to Kushnagara. And it is said that he laid down under a tree and laid on his side with one hand under his head. And after sharing a few words that we'll talk about and express in our liturgy, he passed into the great Nirvana. And it is said that there was great weeping and many people, crowds, throngs gathered and there was a lot of sorrow and grief. They say, legend says, only the cats didn't grieve because they understood what had happened. <laughs> so this story is one part of it, that when Shakyamuni died, he entered the great nirvana. In fact, the, the language of it is, is very, very, uh, it's very clear. The language of it is the power and nirvana of Shakyamuni into complete oneness, into nirvana. Now, there's another story, another mythos that Shakyamuni is said to have told. And this was the story of another Buddha who lived in a land far, far away long, long ago. And this person's name was Dharmakara. And Dharmakara was listening to another ancient Buddha preach the Dharma. And when Dharmakara heard this ancient Buddha preach the Dharma, he declared, I will become a Buddha to free all beings. And in fact, the Bodhisattva's vows that we say in our liturgy, that's where they come from. It's said that he made 48 vows, but they've kind of been narrowed down to four. But essentially, and we do that in some of our readings, we, 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 we read from those sutras. He says, I, behold, I will become the great Buddha that will liberate all beings. And so, in that mythic story, Dharmakara, over eons, evolves into Amida Buddha. Amida, Amida representing infinite light, infinite love. So they give us two versions there to help us how we might understand the great question of birth and death and the idea of the deathless sphere we call nirvana. 
and immortality. And that is, we'll start with the second one, that Dharmakara becoming, revolving into Amida Buddha, Amida Buddha being another expression for our true self, the ground of being itself, <clears throat> is one way of looking, a sort of a linear way of looking at things, right? But the truth is, there was never a time where Dharmakara wasn't Amida, because Amida was the ground of his being. The ground of Dharmakara's being was Amida Buddha. And yet, in another sense, he became Amida Buddha. So there's the mystery. But it, it's, it's, it's very important because it helps us to understand that if we look at things <clears throat> excuse me, from a certain time-space linear approach, what the physicists, quantum physicists or astrophysicists call A-time, then we're seeing it as some kind of progression. But if you look at it from B time, where we see the whole picture, there never was a time when it wasn't that way. It was always so. Told you it's a mystery. It is miraculous. The story of Shakyamuni, however, is there to illustrate the other aspect of this teaching which is that when we die, we become Buddha. So when I die, I will enter the great Parinirvana, just like Shakyamuni. I will be Amida Buddha. And yet, I won't lose my uniqueness at the same time. I don't have the time to go in tonight into the metaphors for that, like the net of interest. But I want to kind of focus on a particular practice, the way this is embodied. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this might be difficult for you to wrap your heads around. And it's a difficult practice for me. But I love the way it's done in Japan. In Japan, one of the practices they do is what they call your personal Buddha. What does that mean? Well, in Japan, when someone dies at their death, and some, you know, will hold to 49 days, the bardo total, you know, where you do lots of different ceremonies and so forth. But some people, it's just, that's a human construction to help us work with grieving, a skillful means to help us go through the grieving process. But it's understood. When they die, they're Buddha. Now, you may not find that idea very hard if the person was a saint. Here's the point. <laughs> this is the hard part. It does not matter what they were like. At death, they become Buddha. Why? Well, remember the story of Dharmakara? Some people say, well, see, the understanding is that Outside the boundaries of time and space in this particular dimension, they might go through a million years of evolutionary iterations so that their spiritual journey finally brings them to complete oneness as a Buddha. Because that's the destiny of all beings. So you can look at it that way. 
And the reason that we in our time space dimensional sphere can call them Buddha is because we're recognizing that once they die, they go beyond our time space sphere. And everything that was to happen to them, even if it took a million years, is instant in our understanding. To us, it's instant. To them, to their, to that's that that soul's journey, that spirit's journey, so to speak, it may have taken a million iterations for them to get to that place, like the mythos of Dharmakara. It doesn't matter. From our point of view, that all happened. Once they died, that all happened already. They're Buddha. Like I said. It's not so hard with someone that you really liked <laughs> and you found really great. This teaching is really hard with someone who is not a nice person or had done terrible things. But you see, from the Buddhist point of view, just as I said there, ultimately the Parinirvana of Shakyamuni, the complete oneness, is the path that each of us will finally take. When someone dies from a Buddhist perspective, we call them a Buddha. Because whatever happened after they died, that's way beyond my time, space, dimensional sphere. Now I'm just recognizing them as what they ultimately will be. And whether in this life we thought they were good or they were evil, we know ultimately they will be Buddha. That's a tough practice. We don't like that. Because we want to think that if they're a great person, you know, a saintly person that everybody loved, oh, well, yeah, okay, I can see that. We might even call it the apotheosis. That's a Greek word that was used for even people like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. It was used by the Greeks to describe their, their gods who were once human. Oh, yeah, apotheosis, yeah. But what if that person was a bastard, a son of a bitch who did terrible things? That hard to swallow. <laughs> but you see, in the Buddhist teaching, that's all a matter of our lack of awareness of how things truly are. That when a person dies, from our point of view, we look at the ultimate expression of who they will be. And that is Buddha. As you see in the Dharma, in the Buddhist teachings, there is an unconditional grace. And we experience that even in our daily life where there definitely seems to be a time, space, dimension, and it seems very linear. There's an infinite grace that we are accepted just as we are without any defense. And that all we all we need do to realize it is wake up to that reality, which already exists. Nirvana already is there within you. So no matter where you're at tonight hearing this, no matter what you've done, your destination ultimately is Buddha. Everyone is liberated. It's universal. And Buddhism, even the devil, becomes Buddha. 
no duality. So the evolutionary experience of me becoming Buddha, for you guys, hopefully, you'll recognize it as soon as I'm dead. As soon as I'm dead, you'll start to talk about me as Buddha. And I hope I go before any of you. But if you go first, I will recognize you as Buddha. And that's my practice. Our practice is a process that calls the ego self into being and then causes us to call beyond the egotistical life. An individuation, which is a psychological term for realizing our true selves. Individuation is a step into wholeness where it enables us as individuals to be individuals and yet participate in the whole, in the oneness. And the quest for human life is this awareness that self-conscious human life shares in the eternity of oneness. And that, as I, uh, the words I had written down here earlier was, to the degree that I am in communion with the ever-expanding concept of nirvana within myself, within life, and I realize that as the inexhaustible ground of my being. I will live, love, and be a part of one that's bound not by my mortality, but by boundless eternity. And when it comes to death and dying and what, what all that means, the, the, the surest way I know to develop a firm belief or a firm sense of confidence in what continues after our death is to experience oneness now. The best way to realize nirvana at that crossing over is to realize it now. Realize it in your life now. And by having those personal experiences of our true self, it ensures that we develop a very deep conviction that as we evolve into Buddha, what matters most about us will never be lost. Never be lost. And the existential approach to oneness is the view that my true self is Buddha. And the way that I express Buddha is that the more I live fully, the more oneness becomes identified with my life. The more I am able to love freely, the more oneness becomes a part of me. Nirvana is not a separate reality. It is the very depth of your own being. It is not a rejection of your humanity. Because sometimes that's how it comes across, right? No, it is a lifting up of your humanity. That in the very depths of your, your humanity, your sentiency is universal consciousness. And the more fully we love, 
the more deeply we're aware of the interconnectedness with all things. That is the law. That is our path, the path of the Bodhisattva, where we live fully, love freely, and give completely.